Well, it's this uh, first Sunday in 2019, and with the new year, of course, comes opportunity for fresh starts and new perspective, and of course, new resolutions. This is the time of year that people make some sort of an effort to exercise and eat better and finish a project that's nagging them, or maybe start a new project. Most of us make these resolutions, these changes in our lives, because we have a general sense that things just aren't quite right with the world and with ourselves. So we begin with these small goals, and we might make a goal of reading the Bible for 10 minutes every day and starting on January 1st, or, uh, or, or we might attempt exercises four times a week, which would be a great thing for anybody to do. Uh, we might try eating a healthier diet, and we know that if we do that, we'll probably feel better. But if all we do is make short-term goals, we might yield some results, but we won't really address the core issues in our lives. Short-term goals without vision simply can't address the deep questions that cause us this ambient anxiety, I think of it as, um, that comes with questions, the existential questions like, what am I doing with my life? Does anyone ever ask that question? Yeah, I know some of you do, yeah. And you know I do too. Uh, with the question, what is my calling? And am I doing it right? Is any of this going anywhere? Does life matter? And what, if anything, does the church have to say about these questions? Thankfully, we're not the first people in history to be asking questions like this. Uh, no, I don't think 1700s pioneers or fourth century Visigoths were trying to go to therapy about healing their inner child, uh, although I do think there'd be less violence had they done that. Those Visigoths were nasty. But to be a human in a fallen world is to live with the sense that things are not as they ought to be. And from our earliest recorded human historical writings, our literature, our songs, to the latest songs and movies and books and poetry, that question, what are we here for, and am I making any difference in it, is a question of humanity. The, the early church was no different. Jesus had been raised from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven. He sent his Holy Spirit to indwell his people, and it was all so exciting for that first generation. After all, he was supposed to return maybe any time now and make everything new. Woo, what a time to be alive. But then you know, years turned into generations, and the, the church had grown, which was a good thing, but it also had grown to the point where it was becoming very visible to the opposing authorities. Uh, on the one hand, the leaders of the synagogues were persecuting fellow Jews who had begun to follow Jesus, and on the other hand, the Roman Empire didn't take kindly to citizens of its empire that didn't also worship its emperors and its gods and goddesses. At the same time, the church was growing from just a small band of Jewish Jesus followers to include now Samaritans and Syrians and Greeks and Romans and Egyptians and all sorts of different types of people. And tensions in churches were growing because people of different ethnicities and first languages and religious backgrounds were coming together in Christ. And arguments were coming up about the place of women about the place of food, about sexuality, about whether or not one had to do certain Jewish things before they could become a Christian or not. And of course, the ever ominous secular culture, is it good or bad or indifferent? 
It's stuff that we're still talking about today in the church. And it's in this setting that Luke, the, the, the writer, the apostle, writes a two-volume work to help encourage the church. These two volumes are the Gospel of Luke and a book that we call Acts. For the past couple of years as a church, we have journeyed through the entire Gospel of Luke, looking, uh, looking at it under a microscope and preaching through those texts. And today, we're going to start a journey through the book of Acts, the sequel, volume two. So if you're able, I'd encourage you to stand as we read Acts chapter one, verses one through eight. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it the time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Lord, we thank you for not just your word, but for your spirit that brings these things to life. We thank you for your church that you have breathed life into and just by the fact that we're alive today, speaking about these very same things, teaching the, the words of the apostles, Lord, we know that you are in this. So thank you for that encouragement. And we pray, as Luke wrote to encourage the early church, that we too would be filled with your encouragement, with your spirit, with your fire. Amen. You may be seated. Just as with the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts is addressed to a man named Theophilus. We don't know much about Theophilus, except that his name is common in the first century among people. And it means roughly God-lover or one who loves God. Life under the Roman Empire at this time left a huge chasm, worse than anything that we're experiencing in America right now, if you can imagine, between the ultra-wealthy and the ultra-poor. There was no such thing as a middle class in the Roman Empire in this time. And in that system, the wealthy and generous would often act as patrons, right? A patron might, for example, throw a festival for a whole town. One person, one patron might buy food and drinks and entertainment for a whole small village or town as a way of saying, uh, if you're loyal to me, I'll keep doing these things for you. And it's kind of reciprocity it's how it works or they may pay for a new library in the city or commission works of art that, art that would add beauty to a community while often uh, also employing craftsmen that's how people would work in fact we were blessed to get lion king tickets for christmas for my mother-in-law and went to that amazing show at the paramount 
in Seattle, and there, uh, you know, when you look at the program, there are patrons who support the arts. Uh, the ticket prices alone don't support these troops of actors and actresses and, uh, and all that, that wouldn't keep the lights on. So patrons help out. And many scholars believe Theophilus was Luke's patron. He could have been a member of a local church who, like his brothers and sisters in the church, was struggling with his faith and struggling with his place in the world. And since Luke was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, a physician, and well-versed in his writing, he's one of the finest Greek writers in the New Testament, well, maybe Theophilus approached Luke and said, hey, you've had contact with Paul and these other apostles. Would you write something up for, for the church? Because we need some encouragement. I'll bankroll the whole thing. So Luke sets out to write, and I'm quoting now from Luke chapter 1, an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down by those of us from whom the beginning saw or were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught orally. Luke 1, 1 through 4. So like much of these people, Theophilus had been taught orally the, the teachings of Jesus and the history of Jesus. And Luke is putting pen to paper and writing this history so that the churches could have it in their hands and teach from it and do what we're doing now. Acts, Luke's second volume, recaps the end of the gospel by reminding Theophilus and the whole church that Jesus had truly died, then been truly resurrected. And that the resurrection wasn't some event that took place in secret. Luke reminds us that Jesus had appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days over and over again in that time period. They were able to see him and to talk with him, and they did a lot of eating with him, which is, I'm so thankful the church still likes to eat, don't we? And, and, and we like to, they were able to touch him and to learn from him. These convincing proofs, as Luke calls them, are vital because if Jesus had not risen, then there is no reason to hope. Like, case closed, we should just leave this room right now because there's no reason to hope. The persecution, the struggle that they were experiencing and that many in our world experience, it just wouldn't be worth it. And the anxiety about our place in the world, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, I, <laughs> there's no satisfactory answer for it. There's just not. But Luke wants to remind us, by recalling these encounters, that with the resurrection of Jesus, a whole new realm of life is open to us. Just as Noah's journey on the ark for 40 days marked a new beginning, a transition between one world and another, and, uh, this new covenant, and just as Jesus being tempted in the desert and overcoming that temptation for 40 days, just as is that undid what Adam and Eve did when they were tempted. So now Jesus has defeated death, defeated the curse of sin on all who trust in his name. And he's the prototype for all of those of us who will die in Christ only to be raised to new life again. So Luke's first encouragement to Theophilus and to us right at the beginning of the book of Acts is nothing short of a mini Easter sermon. That's a great way to start a teaching is on Easter. 
Now let me just pause for a moment and make an observation that will be important as we journey throughout the whole book of Acts. And I'm going to keep bringing it up, and hopefully because you'll get sick of it, you'll also be burnt into your memory. Acts is mainly about God. It's mainly about God. You know, by the second century AD, uh, this book that Luke wrote had been come to know, uh, had come to be known in the church as the Acts of the Apostles. And you may think that it gained this title because it's about the apostles and their faith and, and how they spread Jesus' teaching throughout the world. But that would be misleading. And if Luke were alive in the second century, he may have taken issue with that title for this book. Because the point of Luke's book isn't that the apostles were so great or so powerful or so faithful, but the point is what God has done and is doing. That is, Jesus who rose and ascended. That it was the spirit of Jesus who indwelled and enabled the church to grow and to spread. And Luke wants Theophilus and you and me to know that no matter what the outside pressures or resistance, the church will continue to grow and continue to persist because of God. He wills it. God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's the central character of the book of Acts. So before Jesus ascends, he gathers his disciples together and he tells them not to leave Jerusalem. Not yet at least. He's got something for them. An ancient promise from the Father spoken by the prophets and then by Jesus himself. The promise that God would send his Holy Spirit to dwell in his people. God's life in you and in me. And Jesus reminds them of his teaching from Luke chapter 3, mainly that while John the Baptist was baptizing people for the forgiveness of their sins with water, that Jesus would baptize people in the Holy Spirit. Rather, let me read that again. That Jesus' disciples would be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days later. Did you catch that? That they would be baptized by the Spirit. Passive. That's a passive. That's a gift. God's promises to us are gifts. They're not things that we are earned. They're not things that we have to, 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 to buy or to be at a certain caliber of person before we receive. Well, the disciples in this story didn't have the luxury of time, and they didn't have the luxury of the book of Acts. Like, they're living this stuff that we're now reading in retrospect. And they're still trying to figure out what all of this mumbo-jumbo Jesus is talking about really meant. And before they came to understand, they first misunderstand. First misunderstand. They ask, Lord, is it time now that you're going to be restoring the kingdom to Israel? And their question gets Two things wrong and one thing right. Two things wrong and one thing right. They were right to ask about the kingdom of God because that was the central message Jesus was always preaching and talking about. The kingdom, the reign of God was the central theme in his lessons, in his parables, in his teaching. It was all about the kingdom. But the disciples, along with most first, Jew, uh, first century Jewish teachers, were wrong about the nature of the kingdom of God. And you can see their double error in two words in the question. It, one is the word restoring, and the other is the word Israel. 
When the disciples ask if Jesus was restoring the kingdom to Israel, their question betrays their misunderstanding. They're looking at the world through a lens of nationalism. Basically, they're asking, Lord, is it time that you're going to make Israel great again? As if the kingdom of God would be some sort of return to a a fictitious golden age, an age when Israel was not oppressed by foreign invaders, but the key player in the world. We've only seen glimpses of that throughout all the history of Israel, maybe when the Queen of Sheba comes to Solomon's reign, you know, when he's king, when he has that that little short sliver of a reign where he's not having 150 concubines and doing all these crazy things. Like, maybe that's an image of what Israel was supposed to be, but, oh man, most of the other scriptures are, are talking about how she's in trouble and betraying God all the time over and over again. Nationalism puts our own political state first, among the rest of the world. And you can hear it, of course, in the, the slogan, Make America Great Again, or, and you can hear it all over the world as nations seek first their own advantage over and against the rest of the world. And the mistake that, that they keep making generation to generation, I should say that we keep making generation to generation, is to assume that we can create God's kingdom through our government and through our policies and through our laws. God's kingdom will have a significant influence on politics. Absolutely. You can't divide, like, I'm not into this thing where God's kingdom is totally spiritual and he doesn't care about politics. Oh, he cares intensely about politics. But it's going to have an impact on politics for this reason, because... When people are transformed by Christ, then we will seek life and justice and mercy and equality. We'll seek those things from the bottom up. As a people, things will change. So any allegiance to our nation or state or system over and against God's mission to the world is inherently flawed. Their second mistake was to assume the geolocation of God's kingdom would be the state of Israel or any, any one physical place over and against other any one physical places. God's kingdom is tangible in local settings, but it is not limited to any one place. The reign of God is over all creation, which means that the kingdom will spread throughout the entire world, not just in one place, not in America, not in Israel, Uh, not in Constantinople, not in any one place. So the disciples were right to ask about the kingdom, but they were wrong to think of the kingdom in nationalistic, limited terms. So Jesus tells them, it's not for you to know the times and epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And this is kind of cool. In this sentence, Jesus uses two Greek words to describe the time. Okay, so if I was to translate this Greek sentence literally, I would say, it is not for you to know the times or the times which the Father has fixed in his own authority. Why would Jesus say something like that? It sounds redundant. Well, it's because he's using two words for time, two Greek words. The first is chronos, and it's from this root that we get words like chronology, chronological, chronograph, right, fancy word for clock. It's the literal seconds and minutes and hours and days. It's the, it's the dates on a calendar, like today is 
was it, January 6, 2019, that's chronos time. It's marching in a straight line. You can put it on a calendar. And so Jesus is saying it's not for you to know the date on the calendar when the kingdom comes in its fullness. Okay, that I can understand. The second word Jesus uses for time is kairos. And kairos is used in many places in ancient Greek for describing the quality of time. So you might overhear a conversation in a public setting that goes something like this. Why did you decide to change careers? To which the other person might say, I'm not sure. It just seemed like the right time. That's kairos time. Right? It's a quality statement, not just a, a date statement. In the Bible, kairos time is often more packed with meaning. Not only does it refer to a quality of time, but it most often refers to God's timing, such as in Mark 1, 15. The time, kairos, is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's a kairos time. So Jesus is reinforcing his earlier teaching that the kingdom of God doesn't come like an event on the calendar, like New Year's Day. And it doesn't even come like those weird holidays like Easter that are always shifting dates based on the moon and alignment like that. Remember Luke wrote in the Gospel of Luke, and later in the book of Acts, or, or Luke 20, 12, 21, for example, records Jesus saying, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, there it is, or here it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So when Jesus says this in Luke 21, before his death and resurrection, before his ascension, before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he meant that the kingdom of God is in his person. Like wherever Jesus went, when he was doing his earthly ministry, demons couldn't even handle him. Like they were like, get away from me, send me to the pigs, don't kill me. And whenever he encountered sickness, disease, dismemberment, he would bring wholeness and restoration. He's a, a mini microcosm of the kingdom of God. He raised people from the dead, and he transformed lives, and he made people whole again. He is the kingdom in a person. But now what? If the kingdom isn't national, political, or geolocal, if it isn't a return to some fabled glory days, and if the kingdom was centralized in the person of Jesus who is not here anymore in the flesh, where is it? And that brings us back to our old questions. If, is any of this going anywhere? Does it matter? Well, here's what all this has been leading up to. And you've done so well listening to my stupid chronology, Greek lessons and all of this stuff, because here's the payoff. Jesus tells the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. That's like saying, you will be my witnesses in Bellingham and all of Whatcom County and all of Washington State and to the remotest parts of the world. At first glance, it seems like an impossible task. If Jesus were to, to say, to stay put uh, until you acquire power, then you can get to work being my witnesses around the world, the church would almost certainly have been extinct by now. Like, there's no way we would have made it on our own. I mean, you, you, you know us, right? Like, damn. But that's not what Jesus says, and you've got to look close at the verbs. The verbs, they tell us so much. They are passives. 
you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The power of the Spirit is gift. It is something we receive from Jesus. And if the kingdom is where Jesus is, and if Jesus puts his Spirit in you, then guess where the kingdom is? Where the church is. Not only do we receive the Spirit, but Jesus promises to make us into witnesses. That isn't something that we have to get qualified for or earn the right to do. It is a gift. It's a promise. So when the followers of Jesus in the late first century begin to question their effectiveness and they doubt their place as Gentiles maybe among this Jewish movement, like where do I even fit in with these people? Luke writes Acts to encourage the church. God has called you, Jews and Gentiles, through faith in Jesus. And he promises to empower you And he has, like, just look at the evidence, like, 2019, how is this thing still going, if not for the power of God, if not for the movement and work of the Spirit? And by the end of this book, the gospel had gone out as far as Rome, which, according to Luke and his contemporaries, was the hub of the known world. It's like the equivalent of putting something on the internet. Like once it's out, it's out, right, to the world. So if you could get the message to the emperor and to Rome where all roads lead to Rome, but they also, all roads leave from Rome, then the message is getting out to the known world. And in this way, I think Acts is extremely relevant to our current culture and climate for our church. In a world that seems to be losing its way spiritually, and I, for one, question if cultural Christianity and the, you know, everyone looks back to the 50s or the 40s, I, I question whether or not that that was even the greatest thing on earth anyway. Um, is the church still relevant? These are important questions that we're asking, right? Are we a failure? Is Jesus with us? What must we do? Are we working hard enough? Do we have the right strategies? Do we need to hire a consultant? Are we flashy enough? Are we cool enough? Do we do the right kinds of songs? Should I have more video and then preach? You know what I'm saying? Like, there's all these externals that we want to we figure it out. And to these questions, Acts encourages us and says, your mission is actually, I'm not saying it's easy, it's simple. Allow Jesus to make you witnesses. Receive his power from on high. And live into your calling as disciples of Jesus. We all want to know what, what the heck we're doing here. Why did God make me? What is my calling? I just want to, there's two callings here in this message. The one is a general calling. We all who follow Jesus have the same calling. If you're a guest with us today and you're like, I don't, I'm not following Jesus yet. Cool. This is what, if you do start to follow Jesus, this is what your calling will be. So you can decide like, I don't know, maybe I don't want that calling. The first is a general calling. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a spirit-empowered witness to Jesus. You have taken on the primary vocation of bearing witness to the love, authority, and life-transforming power of Jesus. My five-year-old asked me this morning, Daddy, how do I know that Jesus is real? It's a great question great question so we talked and she said how do we know i pointed her to the bible well how do we know the bible 
it's accurate, you know? And it always comes, you know, of course, how do you translate all the seminary to five-year-old? Um, I tried. But really, but really the, the payoff, whether you're, you're 65 or you're five, it's still, you know what? Jesus has changed my life. He's changed my life. He's changed the lives of Christians for thousands of years. That's why we're still here. Because the spirit of the living God changes lives. And he gets in us and he makes me a different man and he makes you a different person. And when we're able to, to live differently out of that place of spirit empowerment, we are being a witness. Now, sometimes we make this so complicated where I've got to come up with arguments and I've got to figure out how to have debates with people. No, stop. Stop. John Ortberg says, try softer. I like that statement. How do you do this? Start with the things right in front of you. Don't, don't be looking over the fence. Don't be looking everywhere else. What's right in front of you? What are the relationships that God has put right in your path? And I'm not talking just about people who don't know Jesus. Because everybody's watching your friendships and your marriage and you with your kids. Your kids are watching you if you've got them. Your grandkids are watching you. My kids are watching you if you're in this church. <laughs> no pressure. How are we bearing faithful witness with the relationships we already have? How many of you know a person? How many of you know five people? Come on, put your hands up. You, everybody here knows five people. Look around. How many of you know 20 people? This is ridiculous. I could keep going. <laughs> if I could just influence 20 people really well, really intimately, that would be a life's work worth living, okay? So bearing witness to the people we have right around us in, in, our, in our family, in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in your school, your grocery store. Our, our staff and lead team had a Christmas party last night. We, we don't try and compete with actually like Christmas week, so we 12th day of Christmas, it's on Saturday, let's do it then. We were at Brandywine up in the mezzanine. We had a great time. And, um, and, and I realized as I was, had this sermon fresh on my mind and I paid the bill at the very end, um, one of the last to leave, and, um, and the, the young lady who was serving us, she and her, her other server friend, they said, what group are you guys? And I was like, oh crap, what is this? <laughs> you know, Letter Street's Covenant Church. And she goes, you were so fun to serve tonight. You were so, so polite and, um, and easy to work with. And, and I, oh, yeah, it's a great group of folks. Thanks for saying that. And, you know, and you leave a good tip, people. People are watching that, so we left a good tip. Um, that, that, all, that's, all, that's all I'm talking about. That's bearing faithful witness. It's bearing faithful witness. We just gotta, we've got to treat people who are in our regular spheres of life well. If we can't do that, don't, don't worry about apologetics conferences and things like that. But I know Nancy does treat people well. But that, that's what I'm talking about. You don't have to make it into, into some complicated thing. But being a spirit-empowered witness of Jesus, that's our calling, that's our vocation. We can do that with just the people in our lives that we already know. Jesus has empowered you. If you've been baptized, you have the spirit. And he will lead you into opportunity. You don't even have to try. You might want to pray, Lord, open my eyes to see the people I already know the way you see them. That would help. Okay. And even in the local church, we can act as witnesses to each other. 
in the way that we extend grace, in the way that we attempt to make safe space to question and to learn together. And we can be witnesses in the training up of disciples, young and old. One of our trivia crafts, we did a trivia game last night. How many kids under the age of 15 called Letter Streets Covenant Church their home? 75. Yeah, that's a third of our roughly 220 people that call this church their home, right? Got 75 kids. I think maybe three of them have been baptized. Four? If we can't get that right, what are we doing, right? Faithful witness to what's right in front of us. Serving children's ministry. <laughs> now, as we enter into this new year, maybe feeling rudderless and just drifting, Acts reminds us that we are Jesus' church that he loves us, that he's called us, that he empowers us. And the, we're going to celebrate 10 years of ministry together, uh, our anniversary here in April. It's just me and you guys. Like, without Christ, we wouldn't be doing that. I, it's a little self-deprecating, but I'm serious. I know who I am on the inside. I know a lot of you guys, too. And we need the Spirit of God. Like, he, he's the reason. He's the reason why why we're alive. He's the reason why uh, Paul Peterson on his last Sunday today at BCC, uh, after ministering in this community with integrity for over three decades, that's the reason a guy can do that and leave well because of the Spirit of God and being open to it, right? So that's our primary calling, to bear witness to Jesus in the world. Not only does this give us purpose and direction, but it frees us to do our second calling. And here's the one we always agonize over. Your job. Once we recalibrate and realize that our primary calling is to bear witness to Jesus, then we have tremendous freedom in our second calling, our work, our careers. You can bear witness to Jesus in just about any form of work imaginable. You really can. I know some of you have, like, like Julia, tonight we prayed for you, Julia. You have, for this season in your life, you have this distinct calling from God to do Kids in Motion. That's, that's fantastic. It feels really good to have that, but that's not necessarily the normal way for most people in the church, right? I, I, I got a call from God to do this, to leave the Coast Guard. That's not the normal M.O., like, the average person now changes careers 10 times in their life. And I, and I want you to feel the freedom that if you're, if you're about your first calling, your second calling, just you can do whatever and serve Jesus. You can be a faithful witness as a scientist or a fisherman, as a mail carrier or a contractor. You can bear witness to Jesus as a student or a computer programmer. And you can bear witness to Jesus as a retired person or as a stay-at-home parent. The way you spend your time or make your money, it can be molded into this mission. So Jesus calls, empowers, and turns us into witnesses. And the good news is that all we need to do is receive it and bear witness in the places that he invites us to already. In Jesus, you found your calling. Would you pray with me? Lord, of course, any of this good news we're talking about, about your spirit, about bearing witness, about calling and purpose 
None of it matters if you didn't come and you didn't die and you didn't defeat death by rising again. So we, we bless you for that, for giving yourself for us. I am so thankful, Lord, that you didn't just do that. As amazing as that would have been for you to just do that, just die for us and rise so that we could have an awesome future someday, living in eternity with you. I thank you that you did more than that, Lord, that you, you send us your spirit and you give us something to do that's worthwhile. Bearing witness to the living God, bearing witness to the great lover of the universe, bearing witness to the life changer. And I pray for my sisters and brothers and I who aren't experiencing much life right now, Lord, that first you would minister to those needs, that you would bind up broken hearts, walk with those who are grieving, break chains that are binding those stuck in ruts of sin. Lord, as you lift us out of these dark places, would you give us fresh vision for what life can be? Lord, put people in our path this week, I pray, who surprise us by their openness to you. Surprise us, Lord, with opportunities to bear witness through love and good deeds, through words and presence. Amen. Witness to Jesus as a retired person or as a stay-at-home parent. The way you spend your time or make your money it can be molded into this mission. So Jesus calls, empowers, and turns us into witnesses. And the good news is that all we need to do is receive it and bear witness in the places that he invites us to already. In Jesus, you found your calling. Would you pray with me? Lord, of course any of this good news we're talking about, about your spirit, about bearing witness, about calling and purpose. None of it matters if you didn't come and you didn't die and you didn't defeat death by rising again. So we, we bless you for that, for giving yourself for us. I am so thankful, Lord, that you didn't just do that. As amazing as that would have been, for you to just do that, just die for us and rise so that we could have an awesome future someday, living in eternity with you. I thank you that you did more than that, Lord, that you, you send us your spirit and you give us something to do that's worthwhile. Bearing witness to the living God, bearing witness to the great lover of the universe, bearing witness to the life changer. And I pray for my sisters and brothers and I who aren't experiencing much life right now, Lord, that first you would minister to those needs, that you would bind up broken hearts, walk with those who are grieving, break chains that are binding those stuck in ruts of sin. Lord, as you lift us out of these dark places, would you give us fresh vision for what life can be? Lord, put people in our path this week, I pray, who surprise us by their openness to you. Surprise us, Lord, with opportunities to bear witness through love and good deeds, 
through words and presence. Amen.